It's good to be back because I'm not sure if it's been two or three weeks since I've been here in person. Um, We have been preaching our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to Mark chapter 10, hence why we just had that read beforehand. And for those who have been here for the last couple of weeks when I haven't been able to be here, uh, we know that um, one week I gave a video recorded sermon on something entirely different because given the subject matter that Mark chapter 10 uh, speaks on, uh, quite a personal and sensitive matter, I didn't think that was a topic to deal with via a video where I can't see people face to face or be around to answer the questions that may get raised. So with that being said, I'll just come before the Lord in prayer as we look at this uh, difficult and sensitive topic. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good in all that you do, in all that you say. Even the things that we find hard to hear, you do so out of your care and your love for us. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. May be present in me and in all of us. And abundant measures of both grace and truth as we're present in Christ. Help us to look at your word clearly. May we speak highly of you, your plans for marriage. But Lord, may we also speak words of grace and comfort and redemption in areas where we haven't got things right. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I remember when I was doing a preaching class at Bible College, one of the things they said was, never admit any weakness before a sermon. If you're nervous, don't tell them. If you're not well prepared, don't tell them. Well, I'm going to break that rule. I'm nervous. I'm uncomfortable. And it's not because I've unprepared, because I've been unwell for the last few weeks, I've actually had this sermon prepared for weeks. It's more because of the topic that we're looking at this morning. Mention the word divorce in any gathering of any size and I guarantee there will be emotions. There will be feelings of hurt, shame, guilt, sadness, regret. Someone has said that it's easier to preach on death or hell than it is to preach on divorce. It's highly likely that for the majority of you have been to some degree affected by it, whether directly or a family member or somebody that you know. And today what we're going to be doing is not just looking at Mark chapter 10, but looking a little bit more broadly on the topic to ask the question, what does Jesus say, what does the Bible say both about divorce and remarriage? Now, there's a part of me that would love to preach two entirely separate sermons. One towards those who are single and not married, or those who are married, and a separate one for those who have maybe been divorced and remarried. Not because the overall thrust or the message would be different, but the angle and the approach might be. To the singles and the marrieds, it might be more about a a preventative and talking about the importance and God's ideals for marriage. And to the other, it might still be saying the exact same thing, but speaking a message of comfort 
redemption and hope for those in, in the divorce and remarriage category. It's not the first time I've preached on this topic. I remember when I was pastoring down in Mafra, we were working our way through the book of Ephesians and I got to Ephesians chapter 5 that speaks on the nature of the relationship between a husband and a wife, makes comparisons with, with Christ and the church. And it's a sensitive topic, that one itself. So after the sermon, I took the bold move of having questions and answers from the floor. And I had a reasonably elderly gentleman who was sitting over there, not pointing at someone in this room because this was entirely other state, who stood up and says, because I'd made a point about how Christ loves the church despite our failings. He never leaves us. He never gives up. And he stood up and said, Steve, I divorced my wife and I married another. What does this passage say to me in front of the entirety of the church? I gave a brief answer and I said I would follow up on that. But as soon as I got home, I was thoroughly convicted. I've been asked this question publicly. I need to answer it publicly. So with a great deal of fear that following week, I preached a sermon on divorce and remarriage. And in my head, I was, I was kind of picturing, knowing that there was at least six people in that room, in the church, in the broader church family that I thought it may apply to, didn't know all the context of, of their situation. And I was, to be honest, I was secretly hoping that most of those wouldn't turn up. And every single one of them did. And much to my relief, at the end of that sermon, five of those six actually came and thanked me for it. So I do hope that as we do with this difficult topic, uh, that we'll do so graciously, but also highly upholding God's word and his truth. Now, initially, we were going to do verses 1 to 31, but my big fear was if I just skimmed over 1 to 12, I could potentially do more damage than good by trying to do a surface summary. But even with a comprehensive focus, it's pretty highly likely that there'll be some questions that some of the things I say this morning might raise some questions. Uh, So please do come and speak to me if something sounded out of line or you've got a particular scenario you've got some questions about. We won't just be looking at Matthew chapter 10, as you'll see on the screen there. We'll be having a little bit of a look at Matthew chapter 19, which is the parallel passage. It's got a few more details that Mark doesn't include, as well as a bit of a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So with that in mind, we're not going to go through the text section by section as such, but rather more thematically. We're going to be looking at God's ideals for marriage. Where does Jesus and the Bible stand on divorce? What about remarriage? And then because I don't have the opportunity to preach three different sermons, I'm going to give three words for those who are single, for those who are married, and for those who may have experienced divorce. So firstly, God's ideals for marriage. Now one of the things that I remember when I was thinking about the picture in Ephesians chapter 5, there are two aspects where the comparison between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife are kind of an uneven comparison. You see, when Jesus commits to something, he never fails. He never abuses, he never mistreats, but you can't say the same guaranteed statement about people. And secondly, when Jesus made that commitment to his people, 
He did so knowing exactly everything that the future would entail. Whereas when we stand at an altar and make that commitment, we don't know what that future may or may not entail. But marriage, what we know from the beginning, it was God's idea. It was God's good idea from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Instantly, it never says that he woke him up. Say so if I'm a bit not there. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So as you go through the creation account, everything where God creates, he creates this, says it's good, it's good, and then he says it is not good that man should be alone. And we see two things presented here. Firstly is God was the initiator. It was his idea. And as God brought the woman to the man, Adam didn't even have to go swiping left or right or anything like that. And secondly, his purpose for that relationship is that they would hold fast to his wife. It means literally glued to, bound to, stuck, united as one. So God brought the relationship together and he defined the terms that they would be cleaved together as one flesh. In Mark chapter 10, as well as also repeated in Matthew chapter 19, after quoting Genesis 2, Jesus says, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. There's two reasons for that. One is that it is no longer two. They have been united into one. It's not something that is designed to be separated. Often used as a visual analogy, you get two bits of paper. You glue them together, you try and pull them apart, you end up doing damage to both. But secondly, it is what God has brought together. He brought it together. Therefore, he is the only one with the right and the authority to take it apart. We don't have that right. Marriage, God says in verse 6 of Mark 10, or Jesus says, it's never been that way from the beginning. From the beginning, it was designed to be a lifelong commitment till death do us part. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus outlined this to the, to the disciples and those who are around him, saying, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality commits adultery. The disciples hear that and think, what? Only one exception? So the disciples respond and say to him, if such is the case with a man and a wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Now that might bring a bit of comfort to hear that. Even the disciples, as they hear it laid out, they go, whoa, that's serious. 
You're talking, you're talking about a, a life relationship which you provided one exception. Hence why Jesus is like, yeah, this, this is serious stuff. Not everyone can, can take this up on board. Hence why the expression exists that it is better to wish you were married than to wish you were not. It's better to not be married and wish that you were than to be in a marriage and wish that you were not. Because God, from the beginning, designed it to be a lifelong commitment. Yet because of mankind being corrupted by sin, because we are by nature hard-hearted, we want what we want, even in the Old Testament, concessions were made. Both Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19 begin with the Pharisees asking the question, well, what is it, Jesus? Is divorce lawful or is it not? Mark chapter 10 verse 2 specifically shows us that they asked him with the intention of trying to test him, trying to trip him up, trying to trap him. So where does Jesus stand? The question from the Pharisee seems a pretty innocent question. It seems even maybe a good question. What, what does the law say? What does God say? What do the scriptures say? That's a good question to ask. It's a question that we should ask on anything. What does the scripture say? What does God say? Not what do my friends say? Not what does the government say? Not what does the prevailing culture around me say? What does God say? But one thing which is not apparent to us, being some 2,000 years removed from the situation, is that in their context, the Jewish teachers already had very mixed teaching around this topic. And in particular, when you've got a verse like Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, you can see why. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, When a man takes his wife and marries her, if he then finds... If she then, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, so on and so on. You think, that's a bit vague, isn't it? Finds some indecency. You can see why there was a little bit of debate of what could this possibly mean. Now, a number of times as we've gone through Mark, I've mentioned another Jewish book called the Mishnah, which was like a written record of some of the oral teaching of some of the rabbis. Now, as they wrestle with this topic, you can see the diversity of views that were held at the time which Jesus is speaking into. It says, the house of Shammai says, a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in, in unchastity. Because it is said, if he has found any indecency in anything. So, whoever Shammai is, he agrees with the teaching of Jesus of Matthew chapter 19. Unless it's on sexual unfaithfulness, that's the grounds. But then there's others. The house of Hillel says, even if she spoiled his dish, cook something a bit rotten. Since it is says, if he has found indecency in anything. In other words, he says, open back. Open spade, go for anything, find something you don't like. He says, all goes. Then Rabbi Akiba says, even if he's found someone more prettier than she, since it is said, it shall be if she find no favour in his eyes. 
So this is the setting in which Jesus is being asked the questions when some of the Jewish teachers are saying it can be anything from sexual immorality to anything that you don't like at all, personal preferences, um, or whether you find someone more attractive. Now, I'm glad that those guys got it wrong because Sarah's got every grounds on those other options. You don't have to look even outside this room to find someone more attractive. And you think you can't get something wrong making a salad, but you asked Sarah about something that I prepared for her that was ineligible. Now, Mark doesn't record as much detail as Matthew does, but what he does see is that Jesus asked them, what does Moses say? They say, well, he's told us to write a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, that was only because of your hardness of heart. That's because you wouldn't do what I planned from the beginning. The only thing that Mark specifically adds is there in verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the logic of verses 11 and 12 is because God is the one who has joined the two together, because it was God's plan from the beginning that it would be for life, any attempt by man to separate that is invalid. It's not their right to separate it. Therefore, to marry another would be adultery. Now, if all you had was Mark 10, you'd think, well, I'm not sure if Jesus is okay with divorce or not, but he doesn't seem that keen on on remarriage. And because of the sensitive topic, it would be frustrating just to look at Mark chapter 10 rather than looking a little bit wider. So we will look at Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll see that the Bible explicitly describes two exceptions. In Matthew chapter 19, speaks of one exception of a marriage between two believers. In 1 Corinthians 7, provides one explicit exception for a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. There's other areas which we'll touch on which I wish the Bible gave more clear direction. So firstly, marriage between two believers from Matthew chapter 19. Now we know that Deuteronomy 24 only exists because of the hardness of our hearts. People refused to marry for life. So what Moses was doing was regulating or restricting what people were doing anyway. But what Jesus says, from the beginning, that was never the goal, the purpose, the intention of marriage. In other words, God never commanded, nor has he ever desired divorce to take place. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 19:9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's a few things said there. One is when you read that, you think, wow, and Jesus gets put on the spot. He says there is only one time when he's willing to make an exemption in one setting. But then the other thing that needs to be noted is that term translated Sexual immorality, which is porneia, has a broad range of meaning which, which goes further than just sex itself. It could mean a much broader range of immoral behaviour. But why do you think it would focus on that one? Well, if the two become one, united in that marriage relationship, 
if one of them then enters into a sexual union with another, it breaks that two becoming one. But what do we do with an instruction like this? Should we read it and say, well, Jesus is saying, if your husband or wife is unfaithful, you must get divorced? He's not saying that. He's not commanding, if this happens, this is what you must do. But what he is saying is, if this happens and you divorce, I will not hold this against you. He says he makes an exception, he permits, he doesn't encourage it. God's desire would always be to, for restoration, but he permits it in this particular circumstance. Now I can't imagine the pain of going through that experience of unfaithfulness. We see it in the scriptures, Hosea experienced it very, very vividly. Jesus experienced it. Even God in Jeremiah 3 8 says that he gave the people of Israel a certificate of divorce because of their unfaithfulness. But if our God's desire is restoration, if we're called to be a forgiving people, you've got to think where's the line? How, how forgiving is forgiving? Well, clearly, there, if there's no repentance and it's ongoing, There's a very clear line. That being said, Jesus doesn't define a limit in that thing. He says, if anyone divorces except for this, he doesn't say if it's once, he doesn't say if it's 20 times. Therefore, if someone has divorced, whether it be once or multiple, Jesus says, you are permitted to do so. For example, you could look at Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, now the birth of Jesus took Place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, or literally a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So when Mary is found to be pregnant, Joseph realises he's not the father, so he makes the normal presumption that it must have been somebody else. It says, being a righteous man, he sought to divorce her. So from the perspective of the scriptures, he could have still remained, continued to be a man of righteousness had he divorced, if it was indeed, because of unfaithfulness. But the disciples, that they've heard these words from Jesus, if this is the case... It's better not to marry. This is, this is serious stuff you're talking about, Jesus. And many today probably do well to hear the words of Jesus. Not everyone can receive this. This is serious. Marriages between two believers were designed to be till death do us part. There are only two ways stated in the Bible explicitly stated to validly end that relationship one is death and the other is immorality what about other exceptions one I'm going to talk about a clear cut one and I'll talk about one which I wish was far clearer than what I can find firstly is one between a relationship between a believer and an unbeliever in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 now if you think about the context of Corinth Corinth was not 
a Jewish area. The gospel came to Corinth through the, through the apostles. And therefore, as you can imagine, within marriages, it's quite possible that one of the two, husband or the wife, may have come to faith in Christ. And the end result is you'll end up one of them is a Christian and the other one is not. So Paul is not writing sort of saying, now it's all good for Christians and unbelievers to get married. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he quite specifically says that's not how it's supposed to be. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he's making it clear that this is not something I encourage you to start a marriage this way. But in 1 Corinthians 7, he describes what to do if you're in a marriage and ends up one of you is a believer and the other is not. But on this passage, he says, do not come together in marriage. If one of you is trusting in Christ, the other one is not. It'll always be to your detriment. Guess what? Unbelievers can be every bit as loving, if not more, than other believers. They can be nice, they can be very lovely people. They might even say in the beginning, and they often do, oh, yeah, I'll support you in your church thing, that's great. But my experience has always been the opposite. It might start that way, then it gets to a point that after time they go, nah, this Christian stuff, it's too much. I want out. But for those like in Corinth where there was a marriage where one had come to Christ and the other one had not, Paul writes these instructions. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, one thing that often gets misunderstood as people read this passage, they read Paul say, I say, not the Lord is saying, this bit doesn't really count. This is just Paul sharing a bit of a, a private opinion, a footnote, just to take it or leave it. When Paul says, I say this, not the Lord, what he's saying is, He's not repeating something which the Lord Jesus has already said, but rather as someone under the inspiration of the Spirit is providing as an apostle a new teaching that has not been taught before. He says, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, if they are willing to stay, let them stay. Don't divorce them just because they don't share the same faith with you. If they want to stay, then all good. But... He says, if the unbeliever wants out, if the unbeliever leaves, he doesn't say, much to our surprise, try really hard, win them back. He says, let them go. Which might sound a little bit strange for a God who seems so set on marriage as being for life, for him to say in this setting, if they leave, just just let them go. Don't try and talk them out of it. It's for the same reason that we get the instructions in 2 Corinthians 6 because he knows that when two people have a primary purpose in life that is foundationally different, it usually won't work for the good of the faith of the person who is trusted in Christ. 
Verse 16, he says, you don't know if you will save your spouse. And as I've shared, many people I've spoken with over time, it's usually got worse and worse. Had a guy I used to meet with in Victoria whose wife wouldn't even allow him to have a Bible in the house. But she consented to live with him and he endured. He occasionally got to church on the times, particularly when she was away, but it was a difficult situation for him. But if the unbeliever leaves, the believer is not bound, he says in verse 15. You think, is that it? Two exceptions in the entirety of the Bible described in all of their detail? Sexual immorality or if you're married to an unbeliever and they choose to leave? If it hasn't already crossed your mind already, it's coming now. What about abuse? Surely God does not want a person to be in an abusive marriage. Well, I can say one thing. God would not want anyone to be in a position where they are going to be inflicted with harm. I know it's a minority, but I've heard a small minority of Christian teachers kind of say, no, you've got to stay together and stick it out. Just put up with it. I will not say that. If your safety or your children's safety is at risk, you should get out of that house. I think that's very clear. I don't think there's an issue with being separated for your safety. Even God removed his presence from Israel for a time because of the way in which they were treating him. But as much as I really want to, I haven't yet to find a part of the scriptures that convinces me that you can divorce based on that. Now, I'm not going to say strong enough to say that you can't or you shouldn't. It's the one in which I wish the Bible provided far clearer instruction. I would say don't put your... Be in a house where you're subject to putting yourself or your, your family at harm. And I wish, actually you do wish, the scriptures gave an explicit command to say, if you're being abused, you may divorce. Because let's face it, if you separated and that person never changed their ways and you never went back to live with them, who wants to spend the next 70 years married to someone that you don't live with? I don't know. I'm not going to make a conclusive statement. I know some read 1 Corinthians 7 and see abuse as being like deserting their responsibilities or like an unbeliever leaving. Um, maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to make a clear cut, but personally, I wish it was clearer than what it seems to be. What about remarriage then? All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke say that for someone to divorce and remarry, with the exception of adultery, they sorry, of unfaithfulness, they are committing adultery. So same for anyone who was married and divorced, outside of the exceptions given, I presume the same is being said. But there are mixed views in Christian circles about who can or should or who's biblically permitted to remarry. For example, John Piper, who I have a lot of respect for, he would say death is the only circumstances he would say that someone can biblically remarry. I'm not 
entirely convinced that personally. Like in, in Romans chapter 7, it says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as they live. For a married woman is bound to the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage and presumably may remarry. But when you look at 1 Corinthians 7, the language is pretty similar. When it talks about the marriage between a believer and unbeliever, it says, if the unbeliever leaves, let them go, it says, and the believer is not bound. So I would presume that they are therefore free to remarry. And I personally believe the same thing with the Matthew 19.9, where he says, anyone who divorces his wife, except for with the, Jesus giving permission, if the case is, regarding sexual immorality... I work on the presumption that if Jesus permits the divorce, that it was safe to presume, even though it's not explicitly stated, that he would also permit the remarriage. So if I was asked, what do I think about remarriage? In terms of what I think is... ones I think are clear is if there is immorality, you are permitted, not commanded, but permitted, if it can't be worked through... If you're married to an unbeliever and they leave, die, everyone's united on die, that's an easy one. And this one here, personal opinion, so don't take this as the word of God, personal opinion, I would say if that divorce or whatever happened before you came to Christ, new creation in Christ, I would be inclined to think that you'd be okay to remarry. But again, there's no clear scripture on that particular topic. But if I was divorced, I guarantee my desire <coughs> would be to remarry. My allegiance, though, is to Christ. In fact, pretty much all of my sin is me choosing my desires over choosing Christ. So what are we going to say? For the single, married, and potentially divorced... So see, you could do three sermons here, but I'll just decide to wrap up some concluding words for each of those three situations. To those who are single, and in saying single, I mean not married, those which would include those who have always been single, those who are widows, those who are divorced, uh, under one of those exceptions the scripture provides. May what we've thought about this morning be a reminder that marriage is serious. It is for life. As the disciple says, this is hard to hear. It's not something that you rush into. Marriage isn't just the next step of, oh, we're, we're Facebook official as a relationship, therefore marriage is just the next stage of doing something a bit more serious. It's very serious. In fact, I am very hesitant to marry anyone if one of those two couples even has a plan B up their sleeve. Whether you are single or whether you are married, there are benefits in being in both of those situations. One is not a, a, press, a, a, a better standard to be in. Both have their benefits. I just met with someone during the week who, who is single. I don't know if they desire to be married or not, 
but they speak of the way in which they have been able to be used by God as a result of the situation that they are within. To those who are married, again, we have the reminder about what we are committed to. It is serious. But also, it reminds us of Jesus, of his patience with us. He knows all of our failures. He doesn't send us away. He doesn't give up on us. Never leaves, never forsakes us. Sometimes when you've got two people living in a house, every marriage is one sinner married to another sinner. Sometimes it's just not easy. Remember your vows. Of all the things that happened on that day, they're probably the most important thing that you did was the vows that you made before God. Remember those. Be the best husband that you can be or be the best wife that you can be. Be, Make sure you are working on making sure you are someone who is worth being married to. And above all, use your marriage to be an opportunity to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church and a portrayal of the gospel. And lastly, to the divorced, whether remarried or not. Divorce, within the exceptions, is not a sin and should never be spoken of as a sin, nor should you be treated in that way. Divorce outside of those exceptions is a sin, but it is not the unforgivable sin. I think in any group of this size, there are probably some people who fit within that category, who have been divorced and outside of one of those explicit exceptions the scripture provides. You might feel the weight of that sin, but feel the overwhelming grace and restoration and forgiveness that is in Christ. Your past decisions do not define who you are, nor do they change your status in Christ if you are in Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Incidentally, that all means all. If what we've been talking about this morning describes your past experience, if you haven't already, confess it, bring it before God. It is forgiven, it is dealt with. There is no guilt, there is no shame. If you are in Christ, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. It doesn't make you a lesser Christian. You shouldn't be spoken of. Or treat as though you are a lesser Christian if this is your past experience. There's already enough hurt in divorce itself than to have the church or other Christians add to that hurt by treating you differently because of things that you cannot change. We're called to weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice in the truth. But what if you have remarried 
And it wasn't for one of those reasons for which the scripture provides explicit permission to divorce in the first place. Same again. God's forgiveness is full and free. Bring it before him, confess it. It doesn't mean, I oh, know, every morning I wake up and the Bible says I'm committing adultery because I've remarried. Every single day, adultery day, adultery day. No, the solution is not to get another divorce to get out of that. You've brought it before Christ. It has been forgiven. It has been dealt with. Be the best husband or the best wife in the marriage in which you are currently in. Use this marriage that you are in now to show the never-ending love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that there won't be experiences of hurt or you won't still feel emotions regarding those things. But hear the words of comfort of our God, full of grace and truth, who cleanses us and forgives us from all unrighteousness. For the church that is of all believers, we are described as the bride of Christ. That he is our husband. He is the one who will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13.5, who is always faithful, always respectful, will never abuse that relationship. Everything he does is working for your good. Your marriage may or may not have all of these. But if you are in Christ, you have all of these are yours for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, nobody likes talking on topics which we know where there is hurt and pain. We thank you that you are described as the God of all comfort. We thank you that if we are in Christ, you do not define us by our past decisions that we've made. Because if we haven't made wrong decisions in this department, we've made plenty of others in other very important areas of our life. Well, we, you are gracious. We don't desire to be a people who abuse your grace, but be a people who look and cling dearly to your grace when we recognise our own shortcoming. Thank you that in Christ we have the example of a perfect relationship with no hurt, pain, abuse, selfishness or anything. And Lord, we pray for all of us who are married that a picture of Ephesians 5 relationship between husbands and wife and the Christ and church might be proclaimed in the ways that we live and think and treat one another on a daily basis. Work in us because we know these things are hard. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.